This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available now wherever books are sold. Join me here every week as I talk with fellow anti-diet advocates about their journeys towards peace with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey there, welcome to episode 223 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with comedian, fat-positive activist, and fellow podcaster Jana Schmieding, who you may know from the Woman of Size podcast. We discuss using comedy to call out diet culture, why there needs to be more native representation in the media, how Western values contribute to oppression and ill health, how diet culture's demonization of emotional eating causes additional distress, and so much more. It's a great episode, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Lise, who writes, As a health at every size psychologist, I appreciate your podcast and often encourage my clients to listen to it as well. It seems an oversight, however, that to my knowledge, you never even mention how cultural change has led to bigger bodies. I talk with my clients about how cultural changes, moving less due to conveniences and more sedentary jobs, and easy access to lots of different foods, is our reality today. I find that talking about these cultural choices helps decrease shame about being in a bigger body for some people. I'm wondering if there's a reason you and your guests don't ever seem to refer to this neutral phenomenon. So thanks, Lise, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So I'm really glad you asked this question because I think this is one of those really subtle nuances when working to combat diet culture. So I'm sure that some of the folks you've worked with definitely have had some reduction in shame from hearing these messages that you're speaking about. But in my experience, it can sometimes actually reinforce shame for people to hear that cultural changes have ostensibly led to bigger bodies. And I say ostensibly here because I don't think it's entirely clear that the cultural changes you're talking about have led to larger body sizes. If anything, it's the worry about those cultural changes that contributed to the development of diet culture, right, this culture that led people to start dieting. And we do know that dieting in and of itself tends to drive people's weight up over time. Not that there's anything wrong with weight gain or being in a larger body, of course, But dieting really does tend to have that effect. 
So the idea that food was more available and that jobs were becoming more sedentary came out of the shift from rural life working on farms to industrial jobs in cities in the mid-1800s. That's where this idea, I think, first started to take root. And there was also an industrialization of our food supply that was happening around the same time. And the culture was really awash in anxiety about what those changes, quote-unquote, meant. And this was more than 150 years ago, remember, well before any arguments about a so-called obesity epidemic, heavy air quotes here, right, came on the scene because that concept was only invented about 25 years ago after fatness had become thoroughly demonized in the culture and people had been dieting and trying to lose weight in increasingly large numbers for 100 years. So in other words, I think if the average body size in the U.S. has indeed crept up over the years, which is debatable depending on the years that we're talking about, it probably has a lot more to do with diet culture and the rampant rates of our efforts to shrink ourselves than it does with the nature of our work or the convenience of our food. And of course, good nutrition and having food available definitely could help people uh, achieve the body size that they were genetically determined to achieve in a situation of food access. But there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And what's more, if you look back to the mid-1800s, it's really clear that worries about sedentary jobs and industrial food were not about body size or health per se, so much as they were about morality. The supposed effect of industrialization on moral character, on the moral character of the American people, that was being questioned and debated at the time. And of course, that's ridiculous, right? Because there's no moral difference between rural dwellers and city dwellers or people who farm and people who buy their food from a store or work in office jobs, right? There's no moral virtue in working on a farm as opposed to working in a factory or an office, but the belief that there was, that the belief that there, there was some sort of moral difference there really comes out of puritanical ideas about morality and also is really tied up with racism and xenophobia because a lot of the fears about industrialization and urbanization were actually fears about immigration. And the big wave of immigrants that were moving to the U.S. and moving into U.S. cities specifically because of the opportunity to work in the factories that were springing up there. So I talk about all of this in the first chapter of my book. So if you're curious to know more about this history or read the references, you can check it out there. But I bring up all this history just to point out here that, A, people have been worrying about the effects of sedentary work and convenient food ever since industrialization began. And from the very start, those worries were tied up with arguments about morality, and B, because of that history, it really isn't neutral to say that sedentary work and convenient food, quote unquote, cause more people to be larger bodied. That argument comes with baggage in the form of beliefs that we really, quote unquote, should be working more physical labor intensive jobs and cooking all our food from scratch and all of that stuff. And I think that often that's what people take from conversations about how these kinds of cultural factors have affected body size. They take it as a mandate to start exercising more and eating less or eating differently. And of course, those are dieting behaviors. So really, arguments about sedentary jobs and the food environment are often just triggers for dieting behaviors, especially in the 21st century when we've had almost 20 years of people like Michael Pollan and Marion Nessel and quote-unquote wellness influencers giving out diet tips under the guise of cultural analysis or wellness 
advice, which is basically what chapter two of my book is all about, is this insidious shift from overt diets to covert diets, from diets calling themselves diets to diets by another name. And too often, conversations about food politics are full of very thinly veiled fat phobia and food phobia, which are harmful to people's health no matter their body size, but especially harmful to people in larger bodies who've had to endure repeated incidents of fat phobia and diet culture trauma throughout their lives, and so often have a heightened awareness of it and a heightened sensitivity to it for that reason. And so that is why I don't use that argument. And of course, I can't speak for my guests on the podcast, but I imagine that might be part of why they don't either, because of all this baggage that comes with that argument in the form of morality, in the form of the history of this argument, and in the form of the modern manifestation of this argument as leading people to diet, right? Leading people to engage in dieting behaviors like trying to eat less and move more and do all the things that diet culture tells us to do, except now it's under the guise of correcting for the the problems of the ills of modern life instead of under the guise of weight loss for aesthetics or whatever it might have been before the 21st century. So to Lise who asked the question, I in no way want to shame you for discussing those cultural factors with your clients. I can totally understand why it would seem innocuous and neutral and even freeing to mention these things. And, you know, some of your clients might truly feel like it takes the pressure off of them as individuals to be responsible for their body size. But we're all always learning, even us Hayes professionals, and I know I myself used to talk about the food environment and sedentary jobs and all that stuff too before I started to reflect on how problematic these food activist-type arguments really can be, how they're not really rooted in fact so much as beliefs about what body size means or what certain behaviors mean, and how these arguments can unintentionally trigger shame in the very people that we're trying to help heal from shame. And I also want to say that I'm by no means some perfect clinician here. I just happen to have given a lot of thought to this particular nexus of food politics and diet culture because of my own background and my lived experiences, because I was so bought into the food activist movement for years, and it did me tremendous harm. It really worsened my disordered eating. And so I think that makes me more suspicious of food activist arguments now and more willing to sort of take a critical eye towards them. So I hope this helps answer your question and give you some food for thought as you continue on with your Hayes work and your work with clients. And I'm so grateful that you're out there doing this work and listening to the podcast and asking these questions. To submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want me to answer your questions much more quickly than I can here, you can come check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, where I answer participants' questions every single month, and you also get a treasure trove of special content helping you work through the principles of intuitive eating, and you also get access to our private community forum for daily support from my team and hundreds of awesome course members around the world. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is now available wherever books are sold. 
It's a great companion to this podcast because it goes into so much depth about diet culture and the ways that it harms us and the history of it, as I was just talking about, with tons of scientific references and resources to help you make the anti-diet case to people in your life and to help you start making peace with food and your body as well. Just go to christyharrison.com slash book to get the book or head into any bookstore and ask for anti-diet. And by the way, if you've read the book already and loved it, as I know a number of you have from tweeting at me and posting on Instagram and contacting me in all the different ways, I would be so psyched if you left an Amazon review. Those reviews help more people discover the book, which helps grow the anti-diet movement as a whole. And ultimately, that helps all of us because that helps make the world a safer place for people of all shapes and sizes, including the very largest sizes. So thank you so much for reading the book if you have or for planning to read the book if you haven't already. And I'm so grateful for all of you for listening and being a part of this community. This episode is also brought to you by Bank United. Right now, you can enter Bank United's Go For More sweepstakes for a chance to win $54,000 if a team goes for and completes a two-point conversion during the big game on February 2nd. All you have to do is follow at Bank United on Twitter and tweet at Bank United your answer to what you would do with $54,000 using the hashtag GoForMore54. The more tweets you send, the more chances you have of winning. Again, follow Bank United on Twitter and tweet at Bank United your answer to what you would do with $54,000 using the hashtag GoForMore54. Must be at least 18 years of age to enter. For official rules, visit www.goformore54.com. That's goformore and the number 54.com. Bank United NA, member FDIC. Neither Twitter nor the NFL entities have offered, administered, endorsed, or sponsored the sweepstakes in any way. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Janish Meeting. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. I feel very hashtag blessed <laughs> to be to have not grown up in a family who um, really kind of imposed a weight stigma upon anybody, upon each other. And so, and my relationship with food was, I would say, relatively healthy in, a, I guess, an emotional way. I don't necessarily know what a healthy relationship with food looks like in our <laughs> culture. <laughs> it's so, it just like depends, but I will say that I come from a lower middle class family. Both of my parents were educators. So we didn't have like an extremely broad palette growing up. I grew up in a small town in Oregon, in rural Oregon, and there wasn't a ton of access to different cultural foods, but we are a food loving family. And we are also, I come from a native background. My mother's side is Lakota Sioux native. And we, as a family, we have forever celebrated with food. We, <laughs> we gather with food. Food is not, you know, it's never been seen as just fuel or something that is not just, it's not just part of our survival. It's actually like we use food as the cornerstone of how we function as a family. 
So it's connection, it's celebration, yes. it's yeah. The emotional aspects of food are are very present. Yes, a lot of like positive feelings about food. And to this day, I think we as a family, we still have no shame around food internally. <laughs> and we we don't censor our food for each other. I just, again, I feel like I've been very fortunate growing up without that, without a lot of diet products in the house. And was nobody dieting in your family? Was it kind of not a thing? It wasn't a thing, but I won't say that no one was dieting. I think that like, you know, I had, I developed some disordered eating as an adolescent. And I don't think that that came necessarily from my family, from the way that my parents raised me. I I really think it came from my understanding of pop culture, my uh, kind of, you know, my fandom of pop culture. I loved television. I loved movies and music. And so I was just constantly surrounded, as we all were, by messages of thinness and whiteness being almighty. And I grew up in the 80s and and 90s, and diet culture was (laughs) very rich (laughs) in those decades, just the variations. And so I, I did grow up with a lot of friends of mine whose parents were putting them on diets or whose parents were actively dieting. I think that more than more than dieting, my family was a little bit more stigmatized about movement and athletics. How did they approach movement and athletics? Well, all three of us, my siblings and I, were raised from a very early age to participate in athletics, in team athletics. And I think that that's a really a fine thing. Um, you know, I played three sports a year throughout my entire childhood and adolescence and into my young adulthood. I wasn't necessarily great at it, <laughs> but my father was a, a coach. He was my basketball coach for a couple of years. And I remember there, I have like specific memories of being at my house and a neighbor who was my mom's friend being over and them watching like workout videos and doing workouts in the living room. And my mother is a a woman of size, you know? And, and so I know that she has, that is something that she's struggled with her entire life. I know that it's something that all of the women in my family have struggled with more mentally and emotionally than they have really like grappled with, with it overtly in their day-to-day lives. I would say that we don't really, there's not like a heavy emphasis on movement and exercise, but it is something that I think that like I've been kind of scared away from after being just like constantly inundated with sports and athletics as a teen. I've come into my adulthood like really with a strong desire to repair the relationship between myself and movement and to not feel like it's forced upon me and to not feel like it's something I have to be doing and to not be doing it for a reason that is unhealthy, like weight loss. You know, I don't want to see it as that, but it's really hard to get that out of my mind. I feel like in this culture, that's kind of what exercise and movement is geared toward, or that's what, that's how it's framed so often, even when it starts out 
joyful or as something that parents just kind of get their kids to do, like team sports. I feel like the culture of athletics is so steeped in diet talk and ideas about weight and being like the appropriate weight for a certain sport or needing to lose or gain weight in order to like enhance performance or whatever it is. And it's actually just occurring to me now, I was researching the history of diet culture for my book. And one thing I discovered was that the sort of earliest roots that I could find in recorded history were in ancient Greece and Rome. The ancients were all about shaming people for their food choices, having, you know, the word diet comes from the ancient Greek dieta, which basically means a regimen of eating and exercise and also like maybe sex and bathing practices were sometimes thrown in there. But it was sort of this regimented way that you were supposed to live or you were supposed to, you know, eat and move your body and do these other things. And if you didn't do that, there was like a huge stigma on it. There was a lot of writing that specifically denigrated people who didn't follow these dietary and exercise and bathing practices as like barbarians and, you know, (laughs) subhuman sort of animals. So it's really fascinating to think about that and how like also athletics came out of that time in history. And I didn't even have Mm -hmm. time to go into that in my book, but like athletics really dates back to ancient Greece and Rome too, in the sort of structured way that we know it. And I feel like that lineage is very unbroken in the way that we in the Western world now treat sports and athletics. Yeah. And it's interesting because both athletics and or fitness culture and diet culture can be seen in, from my perspective, can be seen as being highly competitive, competitive with others or with culture or with the self. And that competitiveness was something that I didn't really have. (laughs) I just didn't really give a shit about (laughs) like being the fastest or being the thinnest. I mean, I did strive for thinness for a better part of my life because I felt like it was something I, I didn't really question it to a huge degree, but I didn't excel in athletics because I didn't care. I didn't care to compete wasn't the type of goal setting that I was into. I don't know. But it is interesting that that being competitive, it's such a Western value to be like like strong and fit and and top of the class. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not striving for it, then you must be a huge loser. I don't know. Like what are you doing with your life? It's just it's so unfortunate because so many of us by those standards I think there's so many of us who truly don't give a shit. Yes. So what are we, just losers? (laughs) That's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, completely, especially because it is probably the majority of the population, if not like the vast majority of the population is not super competitive at athletics or other stuff. Yeah, or anything. Right. And I mean, I think it also goes into that like sort of individualistic Western value of like- Yes primacy of the individual and like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you're like a self-made man you know it's always said as like a self-made man rather than the right person (laughs) which says something (laughs) about what our culture sees as someone who can be self-made totally totally yeah that part that individualistic part has always been a conflict in my life as well because it's just not the way that most indigenous nations, uh, uh, at least on Turtle Island or what we now call North America, like that's just not the way we function. 
We are, our value system isn't geared toward the one who is the center. And, and even Western culture tells when, when white, when whiteness tells the story of native America, it's always like this chief and this warrior and this man, this head of the group and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, it's so desperate to center one head man, but that's really, really kind of antithetical to how we functioned as communities. Our value systems and the way that we related to each other were so much more about balance and equity and surviving with each other and thriving with each other. And which I think just like made a lot of space for people with difference, you know, when we're not like centering the ideal of one one human being and that whatever that human being embodies, whether it be, you know, bravery or scholarship or whatever it is, you know, if we're not centering a one ideal narrative, then we are actually like decentering our ideals. And we're then creating space for people who exist otherwise as marginalized. And we make space for people with disabilities. We make space for people who don't identify within the gender binary construct. We make room for people with facial difference and body difference and mental and emotional difference, like all of these things. Like we we can all, there is room for those individuals to be powerful and to be honored and to be respected as equals and not outside of the group. That's so interesting even to think about the term marginalization because, yeah. you know, we talk about that a lot in social justice circles of like people who are marginalized, but like that wouldn't even exist if we didn't have a construct that was like the center versus the margins. Right. Even, you know, the fact that marginalization exists is like a very Western thing, it seems like. It is. It is. It's a very, it's a very Western thing. It's a very colonial thing. It relies on a power structure. It relies on a hierarchy. And it's really hard in our current American culture to what I would call decolonize the way that we exist as relatives, as relations to each other, because there are just so many hierarchies. We have a hierarchy between each other as people first and foremost, but then we have political hierarchies, we have social hierarchies, we have hierarchies between ourselves and animals, we have hierarchies between ourselves and plants. You know, there are just like (laughs) these very extreme ways of relating to our world that are based on a certain ideal being at the top. You know, this kind of Darwinian experience that we're all trying to live. And it's it's actually, that's not the way that people lived before Europeans came onto this land and just fully blew it. That's such an important point. And so interesting to think about that in the context of everything we're always talking about here, like diet culture and like body hierarchies and food hierarchies, but also just everything. Like you said, you know, this hierarchy of human beings and animals and plants, thinking about that with the environmental injustice that goes on and the fact that we're just destroying this planet, you know, not that like, 
I'm no advocate for sort of putting that that on individuals to fix it because that's not an individual responsibility. There's like, you know, definitely things we can do as individuals to a point, but also like don't hurt yourself by trying to go vegan or whatever if you're in a toxic relationship with food because that's not going to end well, you know, but like this is a collective responsibility to fix our relationship with the planet and really goes back to like greedy corporations. There's that Mm -hmm. hierarchy again too, right? These are corporations are sort of considered like super people, like better than people, you know, like they're our overlords and they, they're the ones that are doing all the pollution, you know, a vast majority of it. Yeah. And you, you know, right now, for example, there is a land movement, an indigenous-centered land movement happening with the Kanaka Maoli Hawaiian people, the indigenous people of Hawaii who are trying to protect a very sacred mountain because in indigenous cultures, certain land monuments or land itself is our relative and we will put our lives on the line to protect it if these are places that we go to pray or these are places that we, you know, are harvesting really important food or these are places that have given us as much life as, as you know, we have given it, that's a relative. And so there are people who are combating this, essentially this, what is it called? A super telescope. <laughs> like a, You know, it's like they just want to put, an, and it's not the first, and it's not the only telescope that is, you know, situated on a mountain. It's, it's, and they haven't, of course, they haven't consulted the indigenous people of that land. And so this has been a months long effort by these people to protect their relative, this mountain. And if we think we have to really change, like shift our thinking to, to truly understand that and to value that risk that like personal risk we have to stop thinking about ourselves our human selves as part of this hierarchy that we are somehow more important than this ancient ancient mountain like who the fuck are we (laughs) (laughs) like even me compared to a tree like Mm -hmm. who am i i'm doing (laughs) what am i doing quite honestly what am i doing i'm i'm like drinking water out of a plastic bottle and it's going into the ocean like i'm a trash person like i'm a human trash bin and there's these beautiful trees that are like ages old and they're ingesting our carbon dioxide, <laughs> like giving us clean oxygen, you know, it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> Seriously. It's just so disheartening and mind blowing when you think about that, you know, the sort of scale of that injustice. I'm curious how your, your background and coming up native, I don't know how much of this you knew and sort of embodied as a child or adolescent and you know, what your journey's been like with kind of coming to understand these concepts and how different, because you you were raised, it sounds like in Western culture, you went to like Western schools and stuff, right? So mm-hmm. how did that kind of disconnect between like the Western hierarchical point of view and this more native collectivist or non-hierarchical point of view come into play for you? I feel like I discover every every year I come to understanding more and more about myself based on how I was raised. And I was raised, like you said, like in predominantly white 
public spaces, you know, all most of the, there were no other native families in the, in the small town that I grew up in. Eventually, I think there were a, a couple more, but not necessarily people who were in touch with their indigenous communities. And I was raised by my grandparents and my parents to be in touch with you know, in connection with the intertribal native community in Oregon. And so I grew up partially, obviously, for the most part in white spaces, but then I would also, for a better part of my childhood, exist in these kind of decolonized native-only environments where there were a lot of native people that, you know, helped raise me and aunties and uncles and a ton of grandparents. And just like, you know, I was just, I was a traditional dancer and was raised with my siblings and my cousins as a native person. And so my understanding of everything was really shaded by both of these existences, I was very confused a lot of the time about why I was confused, honestly, about why I was so sad. I didn't understand. I didn't understand intergenerational trauma. I didn't understand that I I was carrying a lot of it. I didn't have language around depression and anxiety to a degree that I wish I had. And the way that I saw bodies in these de- decolonized spaces was not was not hierarchical like it was at school, for example. And you know, at school, you're you're raised around people who, especially in the '90s, where thinness is queen, and God bless you if you have cellulite as a young teen the torture and the harassment and the bullying that happened to young fat people was terrifying. It's terrifying, you know, and you don't ever want to be seen as that or be a part of that or, you know, but also essentially that aspect of what I was observing and what I was a part of, I was struggling so much with that. And then I would go into, you know, my native community and be existing around people who where age and and the elderly are are very highly honored and regarded, you know, like these these totally opposite understandings about body people with bigger bodies and and women with fat bodies were also traditional dancers. They were moving, you know, they were community leaders. These were like the core of of families and of communities. And even in my own family, I mean, we're very matriarchal. We have strong willed women who are running the show and, and also defying kind of American body aesthetics (laughs) every day, you know? So I'm seeing the, I'm seeing both of these paradigms kind of at play and it was quite confusing. And at the same time, I feel very privileged to have had the experience of being raised in a native community because it did, it was, it was helpful. It gave me a a perspective that I would not have otherwise had. And I don't know where I would be today without like my knowing that like my ancestors are at my back and like the, the narrative that I was told from a very young age is we survive. Like we are the people who have risen out of, this horrible, horrible history. 
and we're still here and we're we're amazing like we're we're professionals we you know we've done well for ourselves like we are self-determining we're activists and advocates and also a strong family you know so i was being raised in like a very loving supportive environment it almost felt like i when i would go to school or something i'd be thrown into the wild <laughs> like it was <laughs> terrifying. School was terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice that you had that sort of refuge against all of the horrors of growing up in the 90s in a larger body and non-white body in an all-white environment. I mean, the compounding of those oppressions, I just really... My heart goes out to you as a a young kid because, I mean, I also grew up in the 80s and 90s and my high school experience and and ju- well junior high especially it was like total shit it was awful oh god just the worst and junior high and high school and stuff is like hard enough for someone like me who w- didn't have these areas of marginalization i was always in a smaller body i've always been white i've never had a disability like all of these things that make it harder for people make people targets of oppression and bullying and stuff i didn't experience that. And yet junior high still royally sucked for me. You know, high school still really sucked. And, you know, I just think the more people have these intersecting oppressions, the more traumatic the experience can be of being in like a Western school system. Yes, I totally agree. I I also want to say that I was not a, a fat child. Like I didn't, I was athletic and I also was struggling you know, with disordered eating as a younger person. And, but I was, I've always been chubby and I've always just really, really disliked my body and had an extraordinary amount of body dysmorphia. And I will say that one of the bigger forms of oppression that I faced as a young person growing up in a mostly white community was the erasure that happens when it comes to indigenous people in, in in our history, especially in America. I feel like I feel like in the states versus I have a lot of First Nations friends who are you know born and raised in Canada and Canada, the colonial government of Canada <laughs> is really oppresses the shit out of the First Nations people. But in the states, our government. <laughs> and systems hate native people. (laughs) They don't even address us. I mean, it's, I mean, you can imagine like history books didn't talk about our history. It just made bringing my whole self to the world, to everywhere that I existed. It made it a little bit challenging and it turned me into an unlikely activist. You know, it's not necessarily... I didn't necessarily grow up wanting to be a teacher and wanting to be an advocate, but I have become one out of necessity. And so I try to bring that to everything I do. I try to bring it to my creative work and my writing and my podcast. I try to, as hard as I can, to bring visibility to Native issues and to Native bodies and Native lives, because it's not something I think that we talk about, we're told to talk about at all. No, not at all. And I'm curious too to hear how like your comedy played into that. Was that, I mean, I'm interested in like how you went from being, you know, an adolescent struggling with disordered eating, it sounds like anxiety and depression as well, to, you know, someone doing comedy, which is such a visible 
you're putting yourself in the spotlight, basically. And getting comfortable with that level of visibility, I think, takes a lot of work for someone who is feeling unseen and maybe uncomfortable with being seen for who you really are. So curious to hear about that trajectory. Yeah, I think that for a lot of years, I think honestly, because of my body and because of the person that I was in my body in college, I was studying theater and I just wasn't a person who was going to be put in roles as a lead, as an ingenue, as a person who is the romantic interest. Because of all that bullshit standard hierarchy yeah, stuff you're talking about. Exactly. For those same reasons, I started to see how my how it was infiltrating my life and and still does. So I positioned myself as the funny one mm. <laughs> and kind of went through my comedy career as, you know, the funny fat friend and was very self-deprecating for many years and using my body as a tool for comedy and to make people laugh. And I realized when I was living in New York City for many years and doing a lot of sketch comedy and improv comedy and I just realized how unhappy I had become with, you know, I love making people laugh. There's like nothing that brings me more joy <laughs> than that. But I, I didn't want to continue to sacrifice my self-esteem for that to that end. You know, it just didn't, it didn't balance out. So I started to get serious about writing and journaling about how I was really struggling with my body and and how my body looks and how that appearance, my need to appear healthy and able and thin and all of these things were really like kind of creating these like comedic blocks for me and, and creative blocks for me. And just wasn't, I wasn't cultivating like a, a strong self image for myself <laughs> that was sustainable. Do you think when you first started out, you had this idea in your head of like, if I'm going to be on stage or if I'm going to be a person in this comedy or entertainment business, I have to adhere more to the standard. Like I have to shrink my body in order to try to look more like the quote unquote ideal. I think that that, I'll say this, I would be that if there weren't this other kind of thing that was forming as a young adult in our culture, like in the early 2000s, kind of around the time that I was really starting to get heavily into improv and sketch comedy, which was there was a little bit of space in the comedy zeitgeist for a, a fat person, a fat woman, but she had to use her body for comedy and she had to be the, if not the butt of the joke in on being the butt of the joke. You know, there was just like these inklings of hope <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't quite on the mark of where I would like it to. They're still not, you know, on the mark of where I would like fatness to be represented in mainstream comedy spaces. But it gave me even that little amount of like visibility gave me enough confidence to say, you know what? Nobody else is going to write my shit for me. Like, why don't I just, I have to just keep creating characters and space for myself. I'm never going to be like a young comic to to check out like a rising star like that's just not my narrative. I'm I'm not that. I'm always going to have to be like a self a self-made. 
<laughs> a self-made man, baby. I gotta be right. a self-made man. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta do it. <laughs> I just realized really early on because of my body that I was going to have to create rules for myself. Nobody else was doing it for me. And luckily enough, I had, because I was raised in a family that was like, chase your dreams, baby. <laughs> do whatever, you know, like happiness is key. Don't let the world bog you down. Like that, that whole, that really like pushed me and supported me through being like, all right, well, shit, I'm just going to go for it. This is just a hobby. So if it blows it, like at what cost? Right. What have I got to lose? It's worth a risk. Right. And now I've come to a point where I'm like, this is kind of the crux, the, the crux of my jokes. The crux of my comedy is making fun of diet industry, making fun of fat phobia and being able to really turn around and say, wow, isn't this fucked up that all of you believe this? <laughs> <laughs> Look at your damn selves. Oh, so important. I love like <laughs> the ability to call this stuff out with humor because I think it's so it's such a good like maybe first step in for some people or for people yes. who've like been thinking about this for a while. It's just a welcome relief because sometimes it can feel kind of dark and depressing to think about diet culture and like this huge system of oppression that's so hard to break free from. So like giving people a space to laugh about it is amazing. So needed. Yeah. And comedy is truth. You know, the the best kind of comedy is the comedy that doesn't hold back and that and that really comedy is cultural critique. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we if we give it that importance in our life that like laughter is crucial to like our sanity and our mental health and also the things that we make fun of, the things that we choose to spotlight in our jokes if they are truly making fun of some of the more evil things in our culture, like we are, we're going to get through it, babe. We're going to do it. Yes. Yes. And we're, and it's helping. It's like part of the fight. It's yeah, it really is. It's activism. I love that. So how did you, you know, you mentioned you got into disordered eating in adolescence and I'm curious how your own journey out of that kind of dovetailed with your comedy journey to getting to where you are now. I don't know how I got out of it. I can only say that it's something that I never got help for because I didn't know that you could. I feel like I was just a person who was like watching. I watched like DJ on full house go through an eating disorder. I watched Samantha on days of our lives go through an eating disorder. I watched like Jesse Spano on (laughs) Saved by the bell have a meltdown with speed. (laughs) There are these things that I was seeing that I was like, Oh, this is a thing. Like we're talking about it. Like the need to be thin. I just didn't want, I think that honestly, I go back to this all the time, but I really think that because I wasn't raised with a lot of weight stigma in my family and I wasn't raised with that food shame that a lot of people, a lot of young women, especially I know in my age group have been raised with, it wasn't something that stuck. It wasn't something that stuck with me. I still, I think to this day, I still have issues with food. I notice, especially lately, like I feel like I'm going through, I'm I'm turning 38 in 10 days. I feel like I'm going through this, like another adolescence. It's like the third round of adolescence (laughs) in my life. (laughs) 
But I'm doing things like eating food that makes me feel bad, letting myself kind of wallow in a depressive state without getting help. I'm also like broke and poor. I'm brokest, I'm, I'm unemployed. So like I'm at a very low point just generally in my life right now where it's just like I, I noticed that at a point when I don't have money to access high quality care for the things that I would normally, if I were still a, an educator, a teacher, like I would ha- have a psychiatrist. I would have, I would go see a therapist, like all of these things, all of these access points that would help me support me through getting out of this place. They aren't there. When I was a younger person, I had access, you know, I, I was, I had a, we had a family physician and my mom was really determined to, um, you know, get me help. And I ended up going on anti, antidepressive medication for a couple of years. And I saw the other side (laughs) (laughs) that it didn't have to be like this. So I really do think that like my disordered eating or my starving myself, you know, the ways that it manifested was really, it had a lot to do with my mental health. And once I got help with that, I didn't have as much anxiety about fitting a mold, making it work, you know, like whatever it was. So now at 38 years old, I'm kind of repeating these old habits and noticing them and being like, wow, look at you. Look at you blowing it. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it funny how we just like go back to the same old ways? And, you know, it's not that I'm, I don't, I'm not currently struggling with an eating disorder, but I am noticing patterns of behavior that I once had. And it's just fascinating. And I'm talking about weight stigma every week right now because it's podcast, you know, I'm in the second season of my podcast. So I'm talking to people about their bodies and deconstructing these like systemic oppressions that we all face. (laughs) And like, and still, still in my own life, I'm like internalizing the things that I'm going through. I'm not seeing them for what they are, which is a lot of external pressure from our culture to be a certain way. Well, and I think too, people, I mean, I've definitely gone through this in my life too, and we're actually the same age. So I feel like I've had these moments of recurring adolescence myself (laughs) along the way, (laughs) Uh, like going back to coping mechanisms I used before. But I think especially in times of high stress, like unemployment and worry about your financial future and stuff like that, it's so understandable that you would fall back on these old coping mechanisms that maybe served you in the past as sort of a way to cope with depression or difficult circumstances that ultimately didn't serve you in the long run. But it's understandable that those things that are kind of ingrained in there, I feel like old coping mechanisms are so rooted in our brains that yeah in times of stress it's just easy to default to the things that are really rooted in there like the sort of neural pathway that's carved the deepest totally so it makes total sense and i think also speaks to the fact that no matter how much you know it's not an intellectual thing sometimes disordered eating is like an embodied 
reaction or embodied response that maybe responds to some intellectual work but isn't governed by that. And so you can just know everything about weight stigma and health at every size and like disordered eating and how it's all the culture and it's not your fault and it's diet culture. But like in practice, that doesn't get through because there's this embodied layer that you're operating on. Totally. I I do feel like you know, since I've been kind of coming from this mentality of like, oh, like, where's my next meal going to come from? Not, it's not that bad. You know, I'm, I'm very supported right now. But like, I think that like, all of those stress triggers are, are something that I just can tell that I'm kind of like, easing into some depressive behaviors, you know, like wanting to lay down a lot and I'm keeping chocolate by my pillow, (laughs) (laughs) you know, things where, um, (laughs) these aren't like so detrimental, but they're just different. They're not things that I normally exhibit. And it's unfortunate that we don't have I don't know. We don't have universal healthcare because it's something that's totally avoidable. And you're right. Like I can't outsmart myself. It's so funny. I normally am able to rationalize what I'm doing by intellectualizing it and being like, you know, I'm, this is what's happening. And that's even what I'm doing right now. You know, I'm like, this is what's happening. I'm very conscious of it. I'm going to self-diagnose and just carry right along. (laughs) (laughs) And what's really, you know, what is, what is not changing is the actual behavior that will carry on until I, until it doesn't anymore, until I can figure it out. (laughs) Well, and until too, you can get some support for the things that maybe those behaviors are coping with. So just like you said in the, in the past where you got help for the depression and then it made it less necessary to do the disordered eating, you were sort of like, this doesn't feel important anymore. Right. I think it's the same sort of thing with any difficult situation. Like we might fall back on old coping mechanisms because it's necessary, it feels necessary in the situation, but then improving the situation or finding other ways to cope, AKA universal healthcare would be really helpful here. (laughs) You know, like that would be a coping mechanism for people who lost their job and, you know, needed some support psychologically in between while they figure out their next move. God, absolutely. And so I can understand why like falling back on those old things feels it's just like this embodied response because that's what you that's what you learned to do back in the day and it worked to some level. Yep. And at the same time, you know, I equate food with comfort and family and home and connection. And so when I'm bummed out, there's nothing more comforting than like curling up with a something warm and delicious or just like consuming a lot of warm and delicious things mm-hmm. <laughs> at all times, you know? Yeah. And I'm also at the same time trying really hard to consciously not judge my behaviors. You know, I think that the a really uh, something that I think we do culturally a lot is we do a behavior that is a some kind of exhibition or a, a display of a mental place or an emotional place that we exist at the time. And then we right away place some value on it and just want to say, this is wrong. What I'm doing is bad. And what a shitty behavior. Like, how dare you be, you know, emotionally eating or whatever, which is like 
so scary. Like I can't also carry that burden. <laughs> no. Ugh. And it makes it just really entrenches the issue because now you're you're hurting for whatever you were hurting for before and from like the weight stigma and the food stigma that is placed on you from thinking that it's bad to be using food to cover, right. like, which is so, I mean, that's something that diet culture, I feel like really pushes us into and it demonizes emotional eating. It demonizes turning to food for comfort. And specifically, I think it's related to this idea of like, you're going to gain weight and oh my God, you can't do that, you know? Right. And so this thing that is a coping mechanism and that also in a lot of cases, diet culture creates in the first place, you know, like yes. for people who never were experiencing that and then suddenly start emotionally eating after a diet or something. It's like that's, or, you know, a lot of people I think learn emotional eating in response to a diet. And then it becomes like this coping mechanism for the future also that you go back into. It's pointing the finger at this thing that's actually helping you, like helping you cope and being like, that's the problem instead of right. what actually is, you know, the underlying problem. And also the fact that dieting and shaming yourself for eating this way is not going to help. It's just going to make everything 10 times worse. Yeah. Truly, truly. There's nothing worse than having eaten something that is comforting and actually feels wonderful to eat and then feeling feeling this external shittiness that's just like shame on you. Oh, I know. <laughs> There's this, I can't stand it. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. And no one should have to feel that. Part of the work I do, and I'm sure the work you do too, and raising awareness about weight stigma and trying to fight back against it and dismantle diet culture is that we just need to take off these layers of shame. We just need to like remove that extra layer so that people can focus on what they really need to focus on, help themselves feel better, get through their lives, enjoy their lives, maybe use whatever coping skills they need to use to be able to be happy and feel like they can function, you know, or even just get out of bed in the morning. If not happy, then just sort of able to function. Yeah. There's so many ways in which food helps us with that. And in the grand scheme of things, as many of my past guests have said, you know, that's a very benign coping mechanism. Like, it's not like you're shooting up heroin to try to cope, you know, which right. I mean, again is another way that people try to cope. And I totally understand it. But like that is like immediately detrimental to your well-being, whereas right. food is not. Yeah. I also carry with me a deep understanding that in my history, like in my ancestral past and in my own family, that food was the first line of genocide. It was one of the main forms of colonial control over my people and the way that native, you know, especially the tribes of the Great Plains, like the Lakota, you know, there was a mass extermination that was essentially initiated by the federal government that was kill all of the buffalo, kill the primary source of these people's food and shelter, kill their livelihoods. And, and you know, they all of these different measures that the government went about not only killing off and colonizing the food sources, the traditional food sources that our people lived by, but also bringing in foreign bacteria and initiating a really intense chemical warfare. So it's kind of the way that my people were depleted 
had a lot to do with starvation, had a lot to do with, you know, our health and having ill health and becoming disabled by our, by these things. And even now, you know, a lot of tribal communities struggle with not living in quote unquote food deserts or just not having access to traditional foods and instead relying on government rations, food rations, you know, this is like, and I think about this also through this lens of, you know, weight stigma and food shame. And I'm like, there's like a huge population of people with diabetes and people with heart disease in my communities. And at the same time, I'm really very, very wary of the way that we have internalized this body shame about, you know, this like pathology that has been placed upon our people, this understanding that all we are are people that are living off government handouts and that we're, you know, we're lazy and unhealthy and, and we're just draining the healthcare system or what that is just like, it's really scary because my, because people with who are who don't have access to information otherwise are going to internalize that. That's going to become something that people feel shame about. Yeah, and self-stigmatize in that way. Yeah. And yeah, internalizing that form of oppression rather than seeing, I mean, and it's so insidious because it's like our culture, Western culture, oppresses so many people. And that oppression we know from health research raises their risk of all kinds of chronic diseases and makes it more likely that people are going to get heart disease and diabetes and all these things, regardless of what food they're eating or not eating. But also it happens to be that people in those communities often are sight are in like food deserts as well and can't get access to a wide variety of foods or traditional foods, like you said. And so then it's it becomes this narrative of you're responsible because you're eating all these quote unquote bad foods, not recognizing that racism and economic inequality and all this stuff is creating right is the reason that people are, you know, gravitating towards those foods and that people really need food and need food access and are going to eat whatever's available because that's survival. That's important. And then like blaming people for creating, quote unquote, creating these health conditions by what they eat or how the size of their body. Also not recognizing the stigma, the, you know, the racism, this economic inequality, all of these social determinants of health actually have far greater bearing on our health outcomes than what we eat or how we move our bodies. And so it's like making it into this personal responsibility again, sort of going back to this like Western idea of like personal responsibility and individualism rather than seeing the collective causes and the societal causes that are actually responsible for people's ill health. Yes, which and it drives our youth into disordered eating and their own struggles with self-esteem. And Native children are already struggling with self-esteem. They're they feel invisible. There's no Native representation anywhere that they look in mainstream culture. So they truly feel as if they've been abandoned by the world. <laughs> and so the youth suicide rates on reservations are extraordinarily high. And I consider eating disorders and weight stigma a, a social justice issue. And that compounded with hyper-invisibility of Indigenous children and hopelessness and intergenerational poverty and trauma. 
all of these things are kind of existing in the lives and bodies of Native youth. And it's terrifying. Well, and it reminds me too of what you were saying about your story that your disordered eating was triggered in part by like pop culture and your awareness of pop culture and not seeing your body represented, not seeing bodies like yours represented. Totally. I mean, that's such an important issue for all kinds of people is having more representation so that people don't feel like they have to change something about themselves to be deserving. But like, especially with what you're talking about with the rates of disordered eating, the rates of suicide, how amazing would it be for Native youth to see themselves represented on TV, even if they don't have anyone else Native in their small town or in their school or whatever, just to have one you know, or hopefully multiple like cultural touch points that say basically it's okay to look like you. You are okay. You are enough. Totally. To have an actual, a chubby or a fat native on TV who's thriving and living their life and and truly existing in healthy relation to other people and not trapped in the 1800s with long <laughs> hair and a thin body and sinewy atop a horse, you know, <laughs> like, that is, that's all we have is the dances with wolves version of who we are. We don't have the, the rebel Wilson version of who we are and we are rebel Wilsons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's who we are. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love it. Well, I feel like the work you're doing is so important in that regard. Like, being someone who has the skills in comedy and writing and podcasting and like your podcast is just so listenable. It's so good. You're just, you're a great host. You're a great speaker and funny. And like, I just want everyone to, you know, engage with your work. And I hope that that, I hope that your work and people like you doing the similar work or people listening to you who decide, hey, I want to do this too, can create more representation for Native people so that maybe the next generation can grow up with something other than the bullshit dances with wolves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ideal of what nativeness looks like. Thank you so much for saying that. that it means a great deal to me. It means so much. Yeah. No, I just think you're amazing and I want everyone to know what you're up to. So tell us where people can find you, learn more about your work, support what you're doing, all the good stuff. Well, I have weekly episodes of my podcast, Woman of Size, and those can be listened to wherever you listen to podcasts. I also have a website, womanofsize.com, and I have a Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh, I have all of those accounts at Woman of Size Pod. Um, and that's where I pretty much release all of my thinking and writing and discussion about not only weight stigma, but also native visibility and all of the intersecting justice issues that go along with living in a marginalized body. That's so good. It's such great content. So we'll link to all that in the show notes so that people can find you. And you also mentioned that you had a piece in a YA anthology, The Other F Word. You want to tell us about that? Yes. I would love folks to go out and buy The Other F Word. It's uh, edited by Angie Manfredi and contributions from several different fat positive essayists. And I have an, an essay in the 
compilation called Chubby City Indian, where I talk about growing up in both cultures and what it was like looking at my body through both of those lenses. Mm, It sounds so good. I can't wait to read it. Well, thank you so much. We'll put links to all that in the show notes. And thanks again for sharing your story and just for being so open with us. And it's really a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Janish Meeting for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode and subscribing to the pod on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, whatever that may be. You can see all the places to subscribe at christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path for yourself, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. For full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, you can go to christyharrison.com slash 223. That's christyharrison.com slash 223. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched.